You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So the concept of grit is a combination of how much passion do you have combined with how much perseverance you have for that passion. And having grit, more grit rather than less, could lead to many positive things, maybe even some negative things, but it could lead to success in your career, success in your passion. It could lead to some sort of satisfaction about the direction your life is going. But to actually have grit and and increase it is also related much to how do you learn something very quickly? And alongside of this is how do you even find the things you want to be passionate about? So with Angela Duckworth, author of the best-selling book, Grit, and she also gave a TED Talk about it, which had 8 million views. We explore these issues and more. Right now. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it for a minute because I, everybody talks about it with me, but it wasn't quite an op-ed. It was sort of my personal love affair with New York combined with what I was seeing. And rather than just tell a story, I always try to say one thing new. Yeah. And so the thing that I had that was new that nobody seemed to be recognizing that I was talking about was the fact that increases in bandwidth plus the dangers of liability uh, were leading corporations to tell people, hey, work from remote. We're just as productive with you remote and nobody likes working in a cubicle anyway. So all of that turned out to be correct. And on top of it, in the two and a half months since I wrote the article, which everyone trashed me for, the data has gotten <laughs> so much worse. And I'm actually trying to find solutions and everyone hates me. Yeah, I was just thinking like, how much hate mail did James get for writing this essay? Well, here's the ratio I will go by. And I have some b reason to believe this is the correct ratio, but also maybe I'm just rationalizing. I think 95% of the people liked my article and 5% hated it. But just for my own calculations, I think about 30 million people read the article because <laughs> the 95% were normal people who went on with their lives. The 5% yeah. were everybody from- yeah, yeah. Death threats. Jay, who you just saw, the audio engineer, he got harassed in the street. The stand-up comedy club that I'm co-owner of got vandalized. Wait, you're not kidding. I thought you were speaking hyperbolically. No, I'm not exaggerating at all. Holy shit. I didn't realize that New Yorkers had that violent... Uh... I'm a New Yorker. I didn't realize. I was trying to say, hey, here are some problems. I hope this isn't true, but don't be in denial about it. And then I threw in my story. I'm born and raised all around New York City. Yeah. And everyone kept commenting, he's not even from New York. I'm born and raised. And then in the article, I said, I don't want this to be a problem. People are in denial. And right. now I think they can sort of see it because it's even gotten worse. It's been two and a half months. I get still every day messages trashing me every single day. 
Wow. It never ends. I guess you could, uh, what outlet did it, did it come out originally in the New York Times? No, um, no, no, thank you. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld's rebuttal to me where he just spends the entire page (laughs) trashing me without addressing a single issue. By the way, his book is great, but, and his (laughs) book's an excellent example of grit. I recommend his book. Yeah, he's very uh, gritty. Yeah, I, I just wrote mine on LinkedIn. I have a newsletter on LinkedIn. And I put I put it on my blog. I put it on Medium. I put it on. I could put it wherever I want, really, except the yeah. New York Times. Yeah, and yeah. So, so I put it on the Post because the Post and the Daily News reached out for it. I think the Times might even reached out and and CNBC. So, but I went with the Post because I used to write for them. And then it got so much hate. And at ten days later or two weeks later, I thought it was done. And then I wake up to Seinfeld, and then it never ended. And then he went on 60 Minutes, and somebody told me Saturday Night Live referred to it the other day. Like, I'm just getting... Well, you and, know. And by the way, the data keeps getting worse, and I keep trying to tell people, but no one listens to me. Well, or everyone's listening to you. That's true. You know. everyone, everyone is listening to me. And, and, and I wrote a follow-up where I admit I could see why people were upset. Like, if you lose your job, but you own a property in New York City, which a lot of, you know, there's a lot of circumstances where people were just in general upset. It was a heated environment. Yeah, I think and everyone then, is upset. Yeah. And then see my article thrown on top of that, it felt too much for people. And maybe I, I definitely should have realized that I still would have said the same thing because the problems are still there. I wasn't giving an opinion. It, it was that's not why an I, opinion I piece. I take issue actually. with the op-ed part. It wasn't an opinion piece. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Okay, right, because you were stating some things that were descriptively true and then also just explaining how you felt about them. Yeah, I was, so I was writing a good story with some facts. But <laughs> uh, uh, but wow. how are you? <laughs> uh, I'm fine. I don't have anybody who's uh, like reading my work the way they're reading yours, I guess. I'm not so sure. I, I wish instead of 30 million reading this article that 7.1 million people would have watched a TED video where they all love me afterwards. <laughs> Although you got your own share of heat. Like uh, I yeah. saw one criticism that um, anyone recommending grit to a child should be charged with child abuse. So you got you got your heat. I have I have some criticism, which I'm you know. What'd that to feel do. like? Uh, well, I'm a human, so I am prone to be defensive and wounded uh, when criticized. But I'm also a psychologist, so I'm, you know, I try to reframe and then like think like, oh, what are they really saying? But, but I just want to say like, yeah, of course, I feel defensive and I feel wounded the first, you know, time somebody says, oh, you know, the idea of teaching grit is racist or like, wow, you must be tone deaf to like inequality and, you know, structural lack of opportunity. So I, I think the better part of me, you know, Michelle Obama says like, go high, like the better angel of my nature, like listens. Yeah. I think, look, I've been doing this for a long time and some articles get more heat than others and, and some works and so on and some opinions. And I always like to think I'm building a stronger and like a thicker skin, but you know, if, if the more you stick out like a nail, the more likely you are to get hammered and, uh, you could build a thick skin, but sometimes people are just lucky and they find the right buttons to push if thousands of people are trying. Well, yours, okay, your story's a little different though, right? I think because for you, you thought like you got a lot of like hating, but I don't think you changed your mind at all, right? No, I never changed my, I never let- <laughs> You never unless, changed your mind. I changed my mind and I could tell you things I've changed my mind about, but people have to be convincing. Like I spend a long time researching yeah. these things and then people have their gut reaction 
Look, but I even afterwards, I spoke to mayoral candidates. I spoke to officials, you know, in the White House, and I spoke to people in Congress, and I spoke to Federal Reserve members. Like I was actively trying to wonder, just brainstorming what solutions could exist, yeah. both before and after the article. It's a very difficult problem for cities like New York, L.A., San Francisco. But I could only speak personally to to New York. But even you know, the data obviously right now in Philadelphia is having some problems, and Philadelphia is having some problems. Philadelphia yeah. is right outside my window here. And just have, but the point is, is that like you thought more, you learned more, but you didn't really fundamentally change your perspective because of what people criticized you for. No, I would say I wrote an article once, which was very popular, but also had the same kind of danger or heat back and forth about why people shouldn't own homes. And I went through the math of a home as an investment. Yeah. And the one area where I was persuaded is that if you go in understanding that it's a bad investment and you take care of your personal finances, knowing that, then buying a home could yeah, be good. Yeah, it's not an asset. It's a consumption good, right. as my, as my husband, right. who is a real estate developer, likes to say. Yeah, and he and he's right. But that's the problem is you have a $15 trillion mortgage agent, uh, 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 industry, industry that is you know, uses its advertising dollars to convince you of multiple ways to, that you should buy a home. And that programs people into, quote unquote, the American dream. Oh, interesting. Where, where it is that you, because it is the largest place where they park their capital, right? Yeah. Even, yeah, even if it, but it doesn't generate income like an actual asset is supposed to do. Right. And so, and so it generates a huge cognitive dissonance if you question it, because that's the largest financial decision they'll ever make in their lives. And if then the very next day someone says, hey, you should never have done that. And then there's a recession and suddenly you can't sell your home and James just said you never should have done that. You're going to have a reaction because I, I can't be wrong. I'm uh, My brain is smart and like people get a cognitive dissonance. And the same yeah. thing, you know, if you tell people don't send your kids to college and here's all the data, or if you say your vote's kind of meaningless, that also true. Anything that goes against the marketing image of the American dream will trigger cognitive dissonance. I think you could argue like anything that goes against what you want to believe is true and currently believe is true, right? Like if you tell people things that are against what everyone else is saying, but it's what they would like to believe, then I don't think you get the same reaction. But well, but for me, when I had this criticism about grit, just to close the loop about it, right? I I think after getting over being defensive and getting over like self-oriented, you know, pity. I don't know that I changed my mind fundamentally in that as a social scientist, I've always, I mean, it, any social scientist believes that like the effects of poverty, neglect, abuse, racism, marginalization are enormous. And I don't study them as objects in the way that sociologists do, right? Like that's the job of sociologists is to study societal level factors. The job of a psychologist typically is to study like the things that are going on in between your ears. So for me, I, I, I wanted to say, and also I wanted it not to sound defensive, but I wanted to say maybe more clearly, maybe that's what happened. I think the critics made me realize maybe the way you felt too for some of the critiques you got around your non-op-ed about New York and its demise, that you at least could appreciate better like how the message landed. And then when I realized like, oh, this message could sound like totally tone deaf to people's situations. I realized that I needed to like send the message differently. I don't know if I changed my beliefs fundamentally because I already believed what the critics were saying. And it's interesting because I, so grit 
I read when it came out, I read it again more recently, which is why when I asked you to come on the podcast, you're a great storyteller, obviously. And you know, that's why your Ted talk so successful. Let's, uh, in addition to the ideas, that's why the, the book is so successful. You tell, you know, your stories, the stories of others, often telling a story helps the reader relate, even if there is cognitive dissonance, but sometimes with some people, the dissonance could be so great. The story doesn't come through. I think stories are, by the way, um, dangerously useful, right? Because you're absolutely right. People read a story and they're like carried along by night. They start to empathize with the person who's in the story. And as a scientist, you know, you got to use that carefully because you could also use stories to get people to believe things that are not true. But anyway, apart from that, which I just wanted to say, like, I, I'm, I, you're right. People get carried it away by these stories, but that isn't always a good thing. Here's my reflection. When you say something, you know, you're not saying it into like a world that doesn't already have its own agenda. And I think sometimes when you talk about something like grit, it's not what people want to be talking about. That's part of how it's interpreted. So, so maybe now is not the time to be talking about grit. Maybe we should be talking about other issues. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not just that you're like, being evaluated on what you're saying, but maybe you're being evaluated on where people think the conversation ought to be, even if they don't like strictly disagree with you. Well, I don't know because for instance, my article had to be written right then in the sense that that was the beginning when the problems of New York City were separating itself from the when problems did it get of the pandemic. So like what? August 13th. Wow, okay. It's still mentioned every day, unfortunately. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but and the thing is that like most people thought the problems of New York City were completely related to the pandemic. And once there's a vaccine, all the problems will be gone. And what I was seeing from my different perspectives is that the problems had separated from the pandemic and experts that I was talking to were in denial. And somehow, and I was just trying to figure out for a long time if I was seeing things differently. And by the way, everyone, and this is gonna sound weird the way I say this, Everyone who kind of wrote something that they felt was intelligent against my article referred to you in a weird way. What? Because yes, not directly, but what they kept saying, and they, they kept saying- They were like, saying, you gotta stick it out. Yeah, they, you would use the specific word and Jerry Seinfeld used it. New York City people have grit and this, <laughs> this bozo better get out of here. Good luck, get yeah. good riddance. And grit, grit, grit. An article came out last night. New York, in the 1700s, New York City people had grit when there was all swamp. And <laughs> so I figured, uh, oh, I just even realized that right now that I've been hearing the name of your book for like the past two and a half months, a hundred thousand times a day. And maybe, the, maybe that's what got me to read it again. I didn't want to even make the connection at all. Like, oh, let's read grit. It could have, and, yeah, priming actually. I yeah. think that's a big reason why we do anything is that, like, this is why advertising works by the way, right? Like of course. the ninth time you see the McDonald's sign, you're like, you know what? I'm gonna go have a dollar cheeseburger. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a, a saying, which is probably backed up by some science somewhere that uh, if, when someone sees seven ads, they don't take action until they've seen an ad seven times. Is so that right? It, okay, it well, have to I don't know that saying, ad. but I, I'm, I'm sure there's no magic number, but I will say that there is this like thing about uh, the mind and the brain, which is that like, you know, parts of it that are just not activated or just like they're there, but they're not really doing anything. And then, yeah, you you like turn them on. So let me ask you this, because and I really want to talk about the book Grit. And, and I know you've talked about this a million times. I want to explain, you know, I want to talk about it in the context of, of, 
learning and success and the intersection between various other theories of learning, like the 10,000 hour rule. But right. do you think, now that I'm thinking about this connection, mm -hmm. do you think cities could have grit? Oh, like, does it make sense to even call New York a gritty city? Yeah, or the New Yorkers as a, as a culture are gritty. I think it makes, I think I believe in culture, right? So like, let's start there. I do believe that, you know, you get off the plane, well, in the days when you would do such a thing, like in Beijing, and it has a different culture than right. if you get off the plane in, you know, Paris or something. So I, I do believe that places are cultural. And then I would further say that, yeah, I think that certain cultures could, you know, embody uh, and evoke things like grit more versus less. So you could have a grittier city. I mean, not in the literal sense, although I guess you could also have actual grit. But yeah, so so whether New York is a gritty city, okay, so I define grit as having this kind of really intense stamina. I mean, I shouldn't say intense. I should say it's really having like this situativeness in in what you're working for and how hard you're working. So it's passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And I guess you could say that a city could be more gritty than another city, right? I, like, Yeah, and I would say, look, I lived two blocks from the World Trade Center in 9-11. I actually lived on Wall Street during the financial crisis. I was in New York City and, and grew up in and around New York City in the 70s. So I saw, like 9-11 felt gritty because the whole world wanted us to rebuild and survive and grow from there. And there was a, a different type and of come leadership. Back, and come back and be in some way like ennobled by the experience. Right, and like a message uh, by, yeah. you know, but it's, I don't feel like the same thing is happening now. And of course, I'm still a New Yorker. I live in, in New York. So what did um, you, what, what is your like current, like what's the updated, you know, November forecast for, according to James Altruller, like for, for New York? Well, I think there's a lot of problems, some of them that I predicted in the article and then some additional problems. For one thing, every single day that restaurants aren't fully open, and this this is pandemic aside, like, yes, we've got to take actions because there's a pandemic and it's unclear what those actions are. You know, just the economy, every day that you, you regulate all the restaurants, whether they're closed or only 25% capacity, you know, it's starting to be winter in a few days restaurants are going out of business. And the danger yeah. is even within the next two months, up to 80 to 90% of restaurants in New York City could just be shut down forever. And, you know, Broadway, like Seinfeld mentioned, you know, oh, well, this poor guy can't go to Broadway. I hate Broadway, but I like, <laughs> but I like the thousand restaurants that keep that Midtown ecosystem alive and the, you know, tens of billions of dollars of tourism revenues and sales taxes that pay for all the services of New York City, which is the reason people have clean streets, subways right. that work, teachers, doctors, police, Everything. and so on. And that's the reason people move in and feel safe and comfortable. And that's the reason tourists come and businesses come. So, and now you have this issue where one in four New Yorkers haven't paid rent since March because of the rent and eviction moratoriums. So January, they extended that, which they probably should have, but there's no solution beyond extensions. And so what's good, nobody keeps 10 months of cash all ready to pay for rent. There's going to be there's going to be a big problem on January first, and so what we're seeing consequently is more people are leaving their apartments and moving. the The exodus out of New York City has only gotten, Worse. you know, maybe maybe five to ten times bigger since since I wrote about it. People are still saying no. When there's a vaccine, it'll be fine. 
That is very unclear to me. And I don't know why everybody automatically thinks that. I see people actually signing and buying homes now. And maybe you see it in Philadelphia. We bought a home <laughs> in Philadelphia. We moved within Philadelphia. So so I, I guess we're not going with the current because we moved five blocks from one place in Center City, Philadelphia to another place in Center City, Philadelphia amidst all of this. So I think we moved probably around the time that you're your essay, let's call it your essay, came out. Yes. So, so we're we're like you know not going with the trend, but um, we also, by the way, didn't move thinking that we were making a very smart financial decision. We we're just like, oh, we want to live in the city. So, you know what's interesting there is that in New York City, you don't really have neighbors in the same way. Like you don't mm -hmm. always know. Oh, they live two floors down from me in this sixty-four apartment building. Let's. I love living here because knowing two floors down and four <laughs> floors down and seven <laughs> floors pals. down is all my friends. So, but I think in, a, in other areas, you do have a, a better sense of tighter community. New York, don't get me wrong, New York City, you know your neighbors and you know your community and that's what I love to, uh, still love about it. But it's not like you have to live in one place to have the same lifestyle. You could live in, it's easier to rent and have the same lifestyle. Well, yeah, that is true. And by the way, don't like start painting Philadelphia like some Norman Rockwell you know, community where we're like passing the turkey to each other, right? Like <laughs> I only know one of my neighbors. They're very nice. <laughs> Michael and Judy, love them. But I haven't actually met any of my other neighbors, like none. I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's funny because, so I, I still live in New York City. I still have my apartment in New York City, but I've been spending a, a couple months in Florida and it's a completely different culture. Like, uh, and it's a more- What part of Florida? Key Biscayne, which is a island a little bit south of Miami. Okay. And it's just a, everybody is so friendly and, <laughs> and in New York city, they're friendly too, but it's, it's different. It's a little more transactional. It's like, okay, oh, they're walking for dinner. somewhere fast. So it's yeah, hard people to, are yeah. more heavily scheduled and, uh, for various reasons, good and bad. I'm not criticizing it, but after 30 years of one, getting used to another has been an adaptation and it's, it's been an interesting Wait, Are you going to stay process. there? Well, I have I have both places, so we'll we'll see what happens. I don't know. Right. But okay. but um, your options open. But grit 
Rich. Now that I've been conned into well, reading your book again. Well, I started down this path because I said <laughs> I read your writing. No, but now, now I realize I've been primed to read Grit again because everyone kept saying <laughs> oh, Grit. You, you don't have Grit. You should move on to another book. <laughs> yes, uh, but it's interesting to me. When I first read it several years ago, it, it struck me as like sort of this almost sequel from Carol Dweck's mindset. Mm -hmm. But in between that and- Which you also read. Yes, and and in between that and like Anders Ericsson's- Peak. Peak, but really more his research on the, you know, prior, Peak was sort of his rebuttal to Malcolm Gladwell's analysis of the 10,000 hour rule in mm, Outliers. That's an interesting way to think about it. And you know, so that rule for people probably know it who are my listeners, but it's this idea that if you do 10,000 hours of deliberate learning, you can master anything. And that involves a lot of grit. So there's this intersection between grit and the 10,000 hour rule. Maybe we could start with that. And as a, just for the listeners, maybe you can kind of explain the umbrella theory here. Yeah. And, you know, for your listeners, I'll say that Anders Ericsson, who coined the term deliberate practice and spent his entire career studying world-class experts in every conceivable domain, passed away not long ago. He passed away this summer. Um, you know, I think suddenly and and prematurely in a way, he was in his early 70s, I think. So it's a good thing to memorialize his accomplishments. I think Anders, who grew up in Sweden, really felt that culturally, the United States in particular, um, had this obsession with talent. And he mm. felt like when you look at people who are truly world-class at what they do, right, you know, multiple-time Olympic gold medalist, grand champion, you know, of fill-in-the-blank, that um, they weren't necessarily like just these gifted prodigies grew up to be miles better than everyone else because they had some kind of like innate machinery that other people didn't, but that the expertise was acquired over, uh, yeah, thousands of hours of practice. Although that number 10,000, you know, comes from a single study of German musicians and like not even Anders Ericsson would say it's a magic number. No. But I do think he would stand by the idea that it takes you know, thousands and thousands of hours accumulated over years and years, because typically he would find that this kind of practice that he called deliberate practice was only done for, you know, maybe a maximum of three or four hours a day because it's so intense. That's right. I mean, um, and just to mention in the early 90s, I was part of some of his experiments researching the 10,000 hour rule when I was I didn't know that. Wait, younger. what? Yeah. How's that? Yeah, because uh, he would study... In the domain of chess, he would study amateurs, chess masters, and chess grandmasters. And I was in the master category. Oh, I am in the master category. I did not know and that. So just like with violinists, first chair, second chair, third chair, he yeah. noticed different hours of deliberate practice that these people had put into it, depending on whether they made the first chair of a orchestra, second or third. And it was the same on chess. But also people ignore his theories on chunking and memory and how someone who spends more hours of literal practice builds a language of chunks in their domain that help them. And, you know, maybe thinking about it, talent is like a shortcut to maybe your first 500 or a thousand chunks, but that a grandmaster of chess is a hundred thousand chunks. Yeah. I think, I think Anders had this very um, complex career that people can't appreciate when they know one meme, like 10,000 hours, but, but he really was this, uh, tremendous cognitive scientist, and he changed the way we understand memory, I think, right? Because just to 
you know, add to people's knowledge of what Anders Ericsson should be known for. So there was a time where people thought like, oh, the magic number seven, you know, seven digits plus or minus two, like nobody could ever remember anything that was more than like nine digits long. Like, you know, how many phone number digits could you ever possibly memorize? Like, well, not not many, right? And And then what Anders found through a series of really clever experiments is that um, there may be limits to your short-term memory. And I think this is actually really telling about like his whole research career. He was always looking for ways that people might be able to circumvent plateaus in performance, right? Mm -hmm. So people might think, oh, there's a limit at nine or there's a limit at seven. There's certainly a limit at some number. And that what Anders would find is that, for example, when you look at people who are trying to memorize extremely long sequences of digits or or lists of names, what they would do is that they would create chunks, as you say, right? So like maybe there is a limit to how many chunks you could know, but then you can know chunks of chunks of chunks, right? So now you have like series embedded within series, and then like all of a sudden the person is, um, you know, creating these like series of chunks that like can get them to be able to spew out hundreds of digits, right? Having only a short time to memorize them. So I think in a way you could think of Andres as having this like incredibly complex, multifaceted career. But in another way, I think it had a really clear goal, which is to, you know, show the the possibilities of human potential. Yeah. And I think what you do with grit, which as you were referring to earlier, when we were talking about cities is, is this sort of combination of of passion and, and perseverance, which I want to ask you about. And there, and there's also this aspect of, you know, talent times effort. And that's how you're kind of getting into the, the domain of the 10,000 hour rule and deliberate learning. And I think you sort of add to that by throwing in what is the, the passion component? What is, what is the perseverance component? What is the talent component? Because I think it's clear nobody's infinitely talented at anything and that some effort is required. He might've rejected talent a little bit too much, yeah, he was pretty purist, I would say. Andres and I went back and forth a lot to be like, come on, let's allow some role for... for." He, he might have been right in average, but there's certainly incidences where people have talent. I think, you know, I think I and say. by the way, most things in human nature are continua, not categories. So it's not that they're like, you know, these people over here, they're talented. These people over here, they're not talented. It's almost certainly a continuum where you could be, you know, anywhere along the spectrum from the most to the least talented. And I think Anders was, you know, of course, a very careful scientist. So he would always phrase it very carefully when he said that he had not yet been shown evidence that beyond like height, you know, that like there are meaningful differences in talent. So he said it in a really careful way. It was like an epistemological statement about like he hadn't been shown evidence. That, but I would always say back like, yeah, but I have a very strong assumption that like everything else about human beings, we vary. And um, why wouldn't we vary like in the rate at which we learn something like math or basketball? Well, I, I think even, so you used to study with Martin Seligman, who's yes. known for his book, Learning Optimism, but just in general, the whole field of positive psychology and what does well-being mean and optimism and so on. And I think he always referred to studies about everybody's got sort of a different baseline of happiness. So you have like this baseline where you're happy and then the bad thing happens to you and you think this is going to be, you're going to be depressed forever, but then you you get a leg amputated. I'm going to take a horrible thing and you'll be unhappy for a while, but then you'll bounce up to your baseline of happiness. 
Well, I don't know if that's an entire, so is, that's a very interesting analogy. Like you, you, you probably mean like a set point, right? Like, a, like as if a thermostat has a set point yeah. and then like it gets cold but in the room, but then like the thermostat kicks on and like it, it brings you back to the set point. So um, that is, I don't know that Marty was like the one who would go around talking about that a lot. I, I know what Marty believes now because I'm in frequent conversation with him and um, it's probably what he's been saying for a while, but I can't be entirely sure, which is that whatever your, you know, dispositional set point, right, like through genes and early experience, um, you could shift that set point in a pretty enduring way, right? Like this whole like last two decades of his life have been devoted to what people can do to become happier um, voluntarily. Like what can you do to intentionally make yourself happier? And what's one unobvious thing other than like more sleep, better diet, better relationships, more creativity? I think the um, the thing that Marty would uh, agree with me, although we'd have to ask him, is um, gratitude, right? So if you can make a habit of, as I did this morning, James, you know, I, I finally made it into a habit, actually, which is that when I wake up in the morning and I'm in bed still and, you know, I turn to my left and like, there's my husband, Jason. And before I spring out of bed and like as quickly as possible, make a large cup of coffee, I think of three good things in my life before I get out of bed. So this morning I thought like Lucy finished her college applications and I just like, she's just a nice person. Like, yay, I have a nice daughter. I have two nice daughters, but I was thinking about Lucy at the moment. Two, I got to see my mom and like my mom's great. And I can't remember the third one. It was probably something really trivial. Like, oh, I think the avocado on the counter is ripe. Like th- those would be three things. And um, what Marty- You only have 12 seconds to be grateful for that one. <laughs> yeah, they do. I know. It's like that New Yorker cartoon where it goes like unripe, 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 too ripe. But yes, I think this three blessings exercise is a way of directing your attention to the positive. And if there is one thing that happy people do, it is that when they choose to pay attention to things, as we all do, right? Because you can't pay attention to everything. You can't remember everything. You can't be thinking about everything, that they are biased in a way to look at the positive. And if you know that about happy people, you can basically just like hack your own life and just like, oh, I'll just do what they do, right? So I think that's maybe something people could do for anything. Like if you see somebody who's like, oh, they're so gritty, I'm not gritty, or like they're so um, socially intelligent, I'm not, well, like, why don't you just try to do what they're doing? I think that to me suggests that we can not be like always at the set point that we were, you know, we can move the set point. So- I'm just curious with the gratitude exercise, do you think there makes a difference in the quality of the things you're grateful for? Meaning you picked, of course, your daughter. If I were to think, if someone were to have a gun to my head, quick, what are you grateful for? Oh, my daughters. I would say the same thing. But what about, there's a notion of like difficult gratitude problems. Like do you ever, okay, you're in Philadelphia right now. It's the day before the election when we're recording this. There's protests in the street. Yeah. Do you ever set yourself a challenge? Like, well, how can I be grateful Hmm. for what is happening in my city right now? Because, you know, even if the people are going through hard times, there's a reason why they're protesting. What in here can I pull out to be grateful for? 
That's and, interesting. And so it's a, yeah. So it's a gratitude problem that's difficult. Yeah, to like solve. like triple black diamond gratitude problem, right? Yeah. As opposed to like the greens or the blues, like. So it's like enlightening you to more issues that you weren't aware of in your own town. Well, there are definitely like reappraisal research studies showing that if you take something and you reframe it in a you know neutral way or a positive way, if it starts off as being like a really negative thing, like yeah, that it can it can influence your mood. So so. Yes, there's some research on that. There's also, you know, this tradition in um, some like mindfulness traditions are that like you think of your enemies and you say things like, you know, let mm. them be well, like let them be safe, like let them be happy, which is a very, I tried it once and I, I'm not yet a big enough person to do it. I was like, yeah, I don't really want to do this anymore. I've tried that as well. It's very um, hard. You could try that with your, you know, many, many people who are sending yes, you emails. Um I think that like the biggest thing to me about all these positive psychology exercises, there's other ones. There's like writing a gratitude letter to somebody you haven't properly thanked. There's like focusing on your strengths and try to use them in a different way every day. Um, I think what they do is they manipulate your attention. Like almost all of them end up, you know, changing where you're looking. Um, and I guess what you were saying is like, in a way, like, could you also change how you're looking, right? Like, you know, the way you're seeing something. And, you know, if there's any lesson about human nature, it's that there are different ways to look at something and there are different things to look at. And so just that insight alone makes you maybe aware of where your own attention is going and how you're subjectively interpreting reality and that you should, if you want to, like change those things if they're not serving you. As uh, I, I love that. There are different ways there are different things to look at and there are different ways to look at them. That's very interesting. This is going to segue into grit now, which is that A, the way I we were just discussing how to maybe reframe gratitude to gratitude problems is almost starting to bring in the perseverance aspect of grit because it might not be immediately obvious what a difficult gratitude problem might be that you should tackle this day. So you have to sort of persevere when you don't at first find things to be grateful for that are difficult to be grateful for. And, and implying that maybe if you could apply grit to learned optimism, that, you know, maybe there's advantages. I don't know. But I want to get to the passion aspect of grit. And you must get this question a lot, which is, A, it's not easy to find your passion. B, people have many passions in life. And they might be fooled by the word perseverance once they find a passion that they only deserve to have or want to have for a few months. Well, I think the word passion, I've been criticized you know, we started off talking about criticism. And one of one of the other things that people um, have brought up is that the word passion isn't really about what I'm talking about, right? Passion is about intensity. Passion is about, you know, just having a really strong emotional attachment to what you're doing. But you could be passionate about something for five minutes. You'd be passionate about it for like a day. And I use the word passion, especially in the context of grit, to talk about like really being loyal to something for years and even more like in the extreme, right? Like Anders Ericsson spent his entire life, I mean, really his entire life trying to understand how experts do what they do. And he worked long days and I believe he worked every day. And like that to me is passion, right? That like, you know, you come back and then five decades later, the guy's still doing it. He's still trying to figure out what experts do. So I try to think about passion the way it plays out in the lives of people who do great things, which to me, I think is more about duration 
than it is about intensity. I mean, you know, an analogy might be physical therapy, right? You know, like you do something stupid or you, whatever, something happens, you go to a physical therapist and they give, usually give you these like set of exercises, which always seem to you like silly and like you're like, oh, this could never work. And I think the the question is like, who's going to benefit from these exercises? The person who does them like really, really hard, totally uh, like all in for like two whole days, right? That's all they do. Is it, or is it the person who just consistently does these physical therapy exercises every day for a really long time? And I think the nature of success is that very often it takes consistency over a really long time to actually get anywhere with it. And, and I think that's why I've chosen to look at passion over the long term as opposed to like intense, you know, fireworks passion that lights up the sky and then it's over. Yeah. And I think Clearly to get great at something, it's not like you're going to be passionate at baseball for five minutes and be a major league baseball player. But if you have some degree of the DNA required to be a baseball player, and then you put in the effort starting as a kid, the 10,000 hours of deliberate learning, and you have the passion for it, you love it, you're on your way to being a great baseball player. But like you say, everything's a continuous, a spectrum. What do you say to someone listening to this who's like driving into their work wherever they are. And they're like, boy, it would be great to be good at something, but I just don't know what I have. I, I don't have the time anymore left. I'm, I'm, I'm 45 years old. I'm 55 years old. I'm 65 years old. And I don't even know what it is I want to be interested in. What am I going to do? Be a, I'm not going to be a professional baseball player. Yeah. What do you say to that? What, what, how does grit apply to them? You know, I think most of the young people that I talk to, I, I mean, I'm a college professor, so I interact with like, a ton of people who are between 18 and 22. So I think it's especially true in those years which are called like emerging adulthood or late adolescence, I guess you'd call it. Um, but it's also true if you're like 42, right? And maybe even more so, like what do you do when you don't feel like you have a passion um, that you could be loyal to for years? I mean, in a way it's a harder problem, right? Than being resilient and doing deliberate practice. So I wonder whether, you know, we have the wrong like mental model for this in society, because I think when we think about people who really, really love what they do, like it feels like they've always loved what they do. And like, it's a kind of divine calling and they're really lucky and they're pretty rare. And then the rest of us are just driving to work, like you said, and kind of like, you know, that we have a job, not a calling. I think that the process is more gradual. Like, at least if you could start with the idea that most people grow into their interests and, you know, that means that they have to, like, do something active because, you know, it's not like every job could become a calling. But, but I wonder whether we have this romantic idea that, um, like, when you find your passion, it would just, like, abundantly clear to you and then you don't have to do anything. Um, whereas it may be more like a relationship where, like, you know, you got to put in some effort. You have to, like, learn more things. I mean, let's just take a simple example. If you are a teacher right? Something which I hope people feel is a calling, but I don't know that everyone feels like, you know, if they're a school teacher, that it's a calling. And then maybe you're like in your fourth year and you're like, you know, it's not, doesn't sound like what Angela Duckworth talks about. I wonder whether you could ask yourself, like, why did I begin doing this in the first place? Like, what did first spark my attraction here? And then is there a way to fan that into like something more of a flame? Like, oh yeah, you know, the part I love is this. Like, can you be a little more intentional and try to do that more? And, and would you give yourself a few years to get more into what you're doing and not just like assume that if it's not sudden love, that like there'll never be that enduring commitment? Yeah, that's interesting. So can I 
almost like I'm pitching a business to you. Can I pitch ideas of how to look at that? And you can yeah, tell me what you think Yeah, and by the way, them? James, I should say, I think that we scheduled this only until 2.30 because I have to like run a lab meeting in four minutes. So I know. Can we, can we schedule to continue? <laughs> I wouldn't mind rescheduling it if you don't mind. It would be like part one and part two. And part two, we dive into how do you find your passion? Again, the relationship between grit and learning faster and how do you learn complicated things faster? And then we have random other conversations all related to the concept of grit, learning, and life satisfaction on our podcast. Mm-hmm.